Hi, this is Sonia Walger and welcome to Bookish, my podcast where I talk to interesting people about the five books that have shaped them most. My guest this week is legal scholar and prolific author Cass Sunstein. Cass taught at the University of Chicago Law School for 27 years and was Obama's regulation czar from 2009 to 2012. He's currently the Robert Walmsley University professor at Harvard Law School. His Wikipedia entry informs me that studies of legal publications between 2009 and 2014 found Sunstein to be the most frequently cited American legal scholar by a wide margin. A fact that doesn't surprise me at all, as whenever we email, he's just finished reading a novel while watching a show I've never heard of, winning a game of squash while taking his son and daughter to school while finishing a book of his own. All this while I unwrap a yoghurt. He and his wife, Samantha Power, former ambassador to the UN, are a true power couple and the most unlikely lost fans you've ever met, which is how we met and began a beautiful friendship. I am so delighted he agreed to let me interview him in my hotel room on a fleeting trip to New York. Cass Sunstein, hi. How lovely of you to be on my podcast, Bookish. Thank you so much for being here. A great pleasure. Thank you. It's really, really fun. I was... um, so thrilled when you agreed to do this and then even more thrilled when I saw your books I had a feeling they would be interesting and varied and that I would learn something and I did just in just in looking up some of the stuff I had a fun time they are a motley crew of books did you have a fun time picking them I did they came to me almost instantly. Did they? Uh, all of them? Uh, all of them, but some of them uh, went away over the course of a few days, and others came back, and it was a little like uh, catching balls in the air. Really? Yes. Did you find it hard to narrow it to five? Uh, yes, it could easily have been 25, but there are five that are uh, marking of times in one's life, so yeah. to think of five books, if you think of it in a certain way, it's a little like thinking of pivotal moments in, a, in life that yeah. those books are with. Yeah, that was that was the hope when I yeah. came up with the with yeah. the show was that they would somehow mark um, epochs or, or, or turning points or decisions about oneself in, yeah. in some way. Uh, clearly, I mean, you could pick just five books that in the last month. Uh, you read if you had a bookie month, but they would probably just be connected with what serendipitously came across, and they wouldn't. Yeah, well, mark. you. I'm just going to say this: you could pick five books that you read in a month because Short you books. are the most voracious <laughs> consumer books. and producer of literature. I mean, really, of, of anyone I know, you just are extraordinary in both your consumption yeah. and output. How do you have the time? Do you, how do you well, make the time? To, do you just make the time I, to read? Uh, well, for a while I was on airplanes a lot, and it was either read books or read airplane magazines. Mm-hmm. And the stories about, you know, some place that that particular airline Where went to. Where to drink to, margaritas and Cabos and Lucas? It was not that amazing <laughs> that that airplane, that, that air, air company actually went to that city in right. Texas. So I thought I'd maybe try a book instead. And you'd rather read than watch a movie, say, in that moment? Well, it depends on the movie. Uh, usually the average book that you can choose for yourself is better than the average movie that's being shown. Sure. Uh, but sometimes there is a fantastic movie and it will uh, overcome the average preference for a book. Yeah. 
Do you, did you come from a family of readers? For your... I did. My mother was a big reader and also someone who had a great capacity to connect mm. and also uh, a deep unwillingness to connect. Oh, interesting. <laughs> what so, an amazing combination. Yeah, yeah it was, uh, she was uh, not the most usual person. And one way she would connect was over books because mm. she was a, um, I think in some ways, a, uh, a victim of uh, a world in which for a woman to have a academic career or a career outside of the home was a bit challenging. And, was she uh, American? She was American, mm. and she was you know, a brilliant woman, and books, and thinking about books, talking about books, and reading books were really in some ways where she lived, mm. and for her son to be interested in that, that was a... A uh, good thing. My dad was basically a sports guy, hmm. and uh, and to connect with him was uh, easy in a kind of surface skimming way, mm-hmm. and uh, it was loving and easy. But books weren't a way in with right. him. It was the tennis court, right? Hence the squash, because you're yeah, an extraordinary squash. squash player, well, an a ranked avid, squash player, no less. So they tell me. Yeah. <laughs> do um, but that's interesting about your mum. Did do you think? It's hard to know what's nature and what's nurture, but do you think the love of books was born out of a necessity, a, 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 a way, a, a knowing at some at some very early level that that was a way to have a connection with think, your mum? I don't think there's the slightest doubt. Right. So um, my first reading was comic books, and I remember my mother saying that many parents think to read comic books is bad, mm. but so long as you're reading, it's mm. great. Mm. And how old was I, six, seven? Mm-hmm. And so the fact that I recollect this to this day suggests that reading and my mother were connected. Confused, yeah. And And when she... Uh, recommended books to me that was a um, uh, that was a signal that we were going to connect over something yeah and and since her feelings ran deep that was uh, uh, connected with the book she particularly loved do you remember ones that she recommended you specifically well, I remember the, the very first book that she recommended it's a very odd choice to recommend to an 11 or 12 year old boy possibly 10 I think 11 12 was uh, Somerset Moms of Human Bondage really your a, first Book. Yeah, it was and my you first read novel. that aged eleven. I think so, maybe twelve. No. And uh, I'm sure it wasn't thirteen. And I, I think it was eleven or twelve. Wow! And, and it's it's a book really for uh, let's say older kids, but it did uh, get to me. And uh, and she loved that book very much. Was she a Morm fan? Had she read others of his? I was think she so. A, right. I think so. But this was her favorite, clearly. And uh, she was amazed that I was reading it and liking it. Mm. And uh, probably every 11 or 12-year-old boy, however well his feet work, think in some ways, I have a club foot. Right. And so, <laughs> That's uh, so true. And so Philip was... Um, someone I identified with. And what's what's funny is that the the romance, if you can call it that, between Philip and uh, Mildred, I guess, is Mildred, the, waitress, yeah. the waitress, uh that's something that uh you know, it's it's kind of unforgettable unforgettable because even for an early or pre-adolescent boy, uh, uh, longing mm. of the sort that Philip had mm. was something that was not unfamiliar, let's yeah, say. Sure. I think for me, it was Mary DeSabato in my fifth grade crush, <laughs> who was a little nicer, but not a lot nicer than Mildred. <laughs> Uh, and uh, uh, so Mildred was recognizable and kind of iconic, and that uh, 
that got to me even at that age and I think was something that either connected with some part of my psyche or that uh, kind of helped shape it. Mm. I fortunately have not had any real Mildreds in my life. But, uh, <laughs> Thank God but, for that. Because to, you know, to clarify for people who don't know the book, you know, Philip is this child of... Um, tragedy really I mean he's raised by his uncle and aunt as I recall and he's um, orphaned and and has this club foot and this deformity and is desperately shy I mean crippled by his by that as much as anything else and then meets this waitress Mildred who he then encounters several times over his life who each time promises to fall in love with he falls deeper and deeper in love with her and every time there's this sort of promise that or or potential that might that she might just return his love and and then she just never does and you know increasingly comes to rely on him and is sick and has a baby that he takes on for a moment until she bails on him i do i do know the book i read the book I, i read the book and um loved the book my grandfather was a huge somerset mom fan so and I raided his library regularly when I ran out of my own books. So I read complete works of Sherlock Holmes at a wow. fairly young age, just because he loved him so much. And then I read the complete works of Somerset Moore, probably wow. only a bit older than, than you were when you read it. So I know how unlikely, um, I know how unlikely it is to find that resonance with him. I mean, a book that was published, I think I looked it up, I think it was 1917 or something that that, that came out. Um, 1915 of Human Bondage came out. And... Uh, but there was also what you were saying about this, the resonance of the longing that I think is so part of adolescence. When I was looking up the book and reminding myself of when it was around, I noticed in one of the articles that I found that it's one of the only books that's referenced in Catcher in the Rye. Holden wow. Caulfield talks wow. about having read it last summer. Wow. And, I, I love Catcher in the Rye. Yeah. And, uh, um, and I didn't know that but it really fits it does doesn't it now philip doesn't have a you know a kind of fuck you attitude which holden Mm -hmm. is walking around with so they're very different types Mm -hmm. but there's probably a philip inside holden caulfield that yeah exactly right i was really really struck by that because catcher in the rye has come up on a few people's lists or franny and zoe came up on someone else's list you've done this isn't the only one you've done you're doing Cass, yours is the only (laughs) podcast there will be no others it is a podcast dedicated to you and you alone (laughs) please rest assured (laughs) Um, but no, because it's interesting. That's one of the things that I'm loving about doing this and, and that's really emerging is that there are invariably constants in terms of not necessarily recurring books, but certainly authors that, that are iconic, that appear on the uh, hundred best is fantastic. books of the and, decade. And it is true that for adolescents, Holden Caulfield is one kind of part of the head mm. and uh, Philip is another yeah. part and maybe they're... Uh, you know, they kind of have to be in some sense both in the in the head. Yeah. And Holden Caulfield's constantly saying everyone's a phony. Yeah. Is uh, maybe uh, Philip uh, if he's a little angry. <laughs> I wish he got more angry in the book. I, I kept yeah. wishing him to just throw his club foot at something. Yeah. It's just so... Well, one of the great things about the book, I think, and what's really stuck with me, is that while Mildred is the 
you know, the more memorable mm-hmm. woman uh, because Philip longs for her. Mm. And I don't remember exactly what mom does such that his longing for her isn't uh, just crazy. Mm. It's understandable. Mm. Is that he ends up, I think, Philip with Sally. Yes. And, and the, the uh, unsuccessful nature, as I see it, of the conclusion of the mm. book is, I think, testimony to uh, the power of the earlier parts of the book where things don't work out for Philip. Yeah. That is, it seems like there's a tacked on, things are fine with Sally, mm-hmm. but clearly he has no passion for Sally. Mm. He kind of thinks she's nice. Mm. And the kind of earnest and uh, um, uh, faked, I think, mm. uh, goodness of that, mm. I think that makes the book actually deeper. I agree, but it's interesting because you see, I didn't, I didn't read the ending, and I haven't re- reread the book for years, and I, it, it actually makes me want to pick it up again, talking to you about it. I don't remember the ending as being um, overly Victorian in that way. I don't remember it being moralized. I don't remember thinking that Philip felt he had arrived at a good place. I remember everyone knowing that me, the reader, Maum, the writer, Philip, the protagonist knowing that this was an enormous compromise, but that life must go on, and therefore this is what... That's probably a better reading than 12-year-old me. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but I'm here to speak for that 12-year-old. That, uh, the, the 12-year-old felt that uh, mom was struggling right. to... Um, uh, make the best, right? And there are some lines in in it, uh, in the, toward the end of, you know, this was good. It was more elaborate than that. Mm-hmm. That, but maybe you know, I, I like what you're saying. That, uh, and that's would be artistically superior. Well, more satisfying maybe than, yeah, than a tacked yeah. on thing. Yeah, Have but, you read it since you were eleven? Uh, I've looked at it, but I haven't read it through. Really? So what I'm what I'm puzzling over as we talk is whether. Uh, uh, the scenes with with Mildred mm. and the uh, passion for Mildred, whether that uh, is portrayed as I remember it, mm. as kind of capturing and distilling a certain kind of romantic longing, mm. or whether it would appeal to an adolescent. Mm-hmm. I think probably Mom's so great that it is not just adolescent, mm. you know, a boy thinking, "Whoa, Mary Disabito, right. my fifth grade crush." <laughs> Hi there, Mary. Hi, Mary. <laughs> um, I, 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 I'm sure it was psychologically better, and there must have been something, or more adult, and there must have been something in Mildred that was a little more interesting than her being withholding. Mm, I don't know. Maybe not. <laughs> Maybe, Maybe, not. Not. Maybe not. Isn't withholding all it takes? I feel like that seems like <laughs> that, can, that, that, that can get you so far. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so. It's so. Maybe that's it. <laughs> Would you recommend it to Declan, to your son? I think now, my, my little boy who's eight years old, I think I'd think, uh, poor kid. Really, not now, obviously. Yeah, but and maybe you... not until he's, you know, really old. Yeah. But I feel protective of my little boy. Yeah. And, uh, I, th- I, I think I would not. Mm. So I'm not sure what my mother was thinking exactly. Mm-hmm. I think she was probably thinking this is literature. Right. And it's about feelings. So... Was it means. your first brush with literature with a capital L? Yeah, do you think? definitely. Really? Yeah. 
up until then it had been comics or later or just sort of more well, boy fair? I'm sure you know My Life in Baseball by Ty Cobb. That was deeply not, familiar with the work. It's history rather than <laughs> literature, but I read that. And there's some encyclopedia of sports that right. had, I'm sure you know that too, which, yeah. we, and if you've done any other episodes of this, they've probably mentioned this too, but episodes <laughs> of the great golfers, the great basketball players, the great You'd base- be surprised. <laughs> there's been a lot of mention of sport memorabilia. I'll, so, I'll leave it at that. So I do remember those, but yeah. also uh, Thor and Spider-Man and Fantastic Four and all this I yeah. read, but I had not read a proper novel right. until that. Wow. What a baptism by fire! Yeah. I mean, that's a really that's yeah. a big one to, to dive yeah. in with. Where did it go from there? What where what where did your taste take you towards? Well, or were I, you still dictated by your mum's? I do remember the next one she recommended was Catch Twenty Two. Really? And uh, I think I made it through Catch-22, uh-huh. but it didn't resonate with me in the same way. Well, yeah. And, and then... Aged uh, 11? That's a- 11, 12, and this was the world, mm. and I didn't even figure out what Catch-22 was exactly, right. and I think I learned that in law school, finally. Mm-hmm. I almost got it. <laughs> um, so uh, there, there was that. I, I read... Uh, James Bond novels at an early yeah. age, but they and I loved them, but they didn't. I thought Ian Fleming was really good, but that that early adolescence, uh, that book was really the definer. Mm-hmm. And in high school, I got kind of electrified uh, when I read very different things, that is, plays and Samuel Beckett in particular. Mm, which brings us to your next one. Yeah, yeah. So Beckett, I love them all. And I, I love them so much in high school that I ended up writing my college thesis on a very obscure Beckett. Which one? Uh, uh, Comment say how it is, mm-hmm. and which is something that no one had written about. Do and not know it. Don't it's, know it It's very all. obscure, and so I chose it as a college senior or try to write something about some book that's not been written about, but mm-hmm. there's probably a reason it wasn't written about. There's basically nothing to say about How it. How easy was that as a paper, my lord? It was. I wrote a lot of words, but they they might not have made much sense. I think what what I'd identify is that there's a kind of contest in my own mind among various Beckett works for the second after of human bondage and crap's last tape is a candidate and i can say a little bit why but, please please but, do well the reason i love crap's last tape is it's the only part the only back at work that I'm aware of and I read them all I think back then where uh, love appears Hmm. so Beckett has uh, a lot about life and uh, irony and uh, attachment Mm. Uh, Vladimir and Estragon are deeply attached touchingly Mm. attached Mm, very much Uh, um, but uh, Crap uh, as I remember has a recollection of of a love affair, which mm. was clearly the most important or meaningful part of his life. And Beckett gets poetic, as Crap is describing it. And I, as I recall, he gets poetic not from uh, sh- telling, but from showing. That is from just describing the events. Mm. And uh, 
that, I think partly because Beckett was so reserved about romantic emotion. Mm -hmm. I mean, lots of things to Beckett were kind of disgusting, and it was like he was playing with words in his own shit a little bit. Mm -hmm. In the novels, the the trilogy of knowledge. I've uh, not read him. uh, I've not read his novels. Malloy, Malone Dies, and The Unnamable. There's a trilogy, and it's it's playing in shit in a way that's uh, kind of sensuous. Yeah. Uh, um, Forget because that doesn't sound so sensuous no, to no, me no, no, either. No, but I'm with you. But but I, but I you sense that in... I mean, I saw Crap's Last Take done two years ago, three years ago by John Hurt, which was... Have you seen that production? It was wonderful. No. It was really, really one of those moments where you felt the fusion of performer and wow. and performance. It was, it was extraordinary. And one of the things that I loved was him relishing in... Um, the word viduity. So there's the two words in it, spool, which is, yes, spool. You know, which he just loves. And then viduity, this one, because apparently in an original version of the play, he'd use the word widowhood, the much more you know common word. Yeah. And, and viduity, I can hear John Hurt saying it and that the enjoyment of the language yeah. in his tongue and you, the audience member, loving the experience, the, the sensual experience. Yeah, completely. So I'm fully with you when you say, yeah. yes, he's playing in shit. I, yeah. I, I know exactly what and you The mean. word spool is, yeah. But yeah, absolutely. And that, uh, so Waiting for Godot, I think, uh, kind of would be my second choice because it was like a uh, entry drug into Beckett. And it was the, that the first one you read? That's the first one I read. Of course, that's the most famous, but it is very great. Yes. And, and uh, what makes it so great? I think the kind of uh, glee and delight in the um, uh, in the in in the mundane. Hmm. You know, uh, shall we go? Let's go. Hmm. They did not move. <laughs> and, uh, the, Constantly, there's th- there's that, and also the sense, which I think got to adolescent years truly, and maybe lots of adolescents, of thinking, what what are we here waiting for? Right. And maybe as an adolescent, you start to think, what's the meaning of life? In mm-hmm. some uh, pompous way, and no, entirely <laughs> student appropriate way. Yeah. I mean, isn't that isn't that yeah what we're doing completely? Yeah. and and Beckett is playing with that. Mm. What's the meaning of life? What are we waiting for? And maybe I mean, one account is that the Vladimir Estragon delight in words in each other mm. and in these characters who appear. You know, that's it. The waiting for is. Um, this is much more pedestrian than Beckett himself, but the waiting for is missing the point. Right. Though it's, yeah. So, but Crap's last tape, I think, has more beauty because of the uh, the, the romance, yeah. which is what uh, is feels completely heartfelt. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know his work thoroughly, nearly thoroughly enough, or nearly as thoroughly as you do. Um, to make that comparison, and it's a lovely one to know. I don't think I, I don't think I knew that. Love is the, it, it really is only in that one, as you say. There's companionship, there's there's contact, and there's what what is the what is the space between us human beings, and how do we fill it or not fill it, or how do we overcome it? But it's not love. It's right. always not named as love. Right. And clearly, I knew, at one point I knew something about this, and I have some recollection that Beckett's own personal life was not loveless by any means, uh-huh. but that uh, his writing was, that's not what he focused on, except there. Yeah. And the fact that he had such restraint in about that, unlike his uh, former 
um, boss, I guess. He was secretary to, to Joyce. Yes. And Joyce was so out there yeah. with this sort of thing. Yeah. And Joyce, one of my favorites also. But Beckett, his own restraint, and in a way, uh, coldness isn't quite the right word, but... Um, but a remoteness, a to remoteness. use a word we were talking about earlier, yeah. Yeah, yeah. A kind of remoteness with respect to romance. Right. And then uh, Crab's last tape, is, is it emerges in a way that feels completely real. Hmm. So there, I think there are very few passages in literature that I know of, or dramas, plays, where there's such uh, truth in, mm. and, and I'm not sure how old Beckett was when he wrote it, but there's something else that's very great about it, which is, I think, in Crap is 69, I think is the... the it was age. first performed in 1957. Uh, the, but the, the age of Crap. Oh, I see. Is, yes, I he is. Yeah, I think that is right, yeah. And he's recollecting a 39-year-old self who's recollecting a 20... Who's went to a 20-something, early 20s-year-old self, that, yeah. That's, there's something in that that is uh, that I, I love, mm. which is the... Okay, so most people, and I think I got this even in high school in some way, that most people, they focus on, you know, the moment and the week and the next week, Mm -hmm. and their prior selves are not visible to Mm -hmm. their current self. Mm -hmm. And to make yourself at, you know, 10 years before, 20 years before, visible to you, Mm -hmm. there's something that is... What difficult about that, rare about that, mm. and I think is peace-inducing mm. about that. Interesting. Why? What, think, where, where's, the, where's the peacefulness, you think? I think it might be that if you're thinking about you know yourself this week and last week and the things you have to solve for the next month, uh, there's in a way you're like a, a rock that's skipping across a surface mm-hmm. by someone who knows how to skim a rock. Mm-hmm. And that that's, there's too much motion in that. Mm-hmm. And that if you're thinking, as the play does, about yourself many years hence, mm-hmm. or many years before, mm-hmm. I guess many years before rather than hence, then you are slowed down because there's continuity with your prior self. Mm. So I'm not sure if this is connecting with you, but the... Uh, the, this play, as we discuss it, mm. I, I can't think of many works that that do that. No, and I'm 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 intrigued. I'm having sort of several thoughts at the same time. One is that it gives crap, in, to my memory anyway, no peace whatsoever to connect with his past selves. There seems just uh. enormous frustration, particularly about as I remember his sort of early twenties self and disgust. And then there are other areas where he does linger and rewind and play that little moment over and over. But also it speaks to, I, I ask myself what what prescience of the 20-year-old crap to know that he wanted to make a tape for his later self to listen back to. And then the other point, these are all completely unrelated, I'm just going to say them because they all occurred to me at the same time while I was listening to you, was that we live in a world that is so obsessed with recording itself that I wonder whether there'll be a crap's last Instagram where, you can, where there will be a version of this of... And and will it bring peace? Will it bring, um, or will, will it, it seem frantic? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Will will the sense of connection to my twenty year old tweets make me wince with horror? <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Um, or will there be some retrieval there? Will there be some incorporation that happens? Okay, so here's here's the, something. So as I remember, Crap's last tape, uh, the tapes are made 
about something he cares about in, in yes. one or another way. Yeah. So it's not like today I went to the store and got new shoes mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. today something happened with my kid mm-hmm. in a way that is just what happened. The mundane. So, sure. so it felt like, this is recollection, that it's things that are, are of ma- matter. Yeah. And so if you read... Uh, um, letters you wrote about something you really cared mm. about sure. when you were 20 or when you were 18, mm-hmm. there might be a woe feeling about right. that right. that would be very different from uh, perhaps less Instagram. <laughs> so if you, got, if you got letters you wrote to your yeah. mother or your father yeah. that you didn't really remember, mm. but once you read them, you got a spark of recognition mm. and you recognize continuity with your current self. Right. That, I'm thinking, that would certainly matter, but it might also, and this is speculative, make you, it might, pieces too crude a word, but something like that. Mm. No, you're right, and this suggests what I'm saying is is not quite fair, and what you're saying is better, that for Crap himself, it, there's a range of things, mm. and maybe that's more what you'd feel. Well, yes, I mean, yeah, because part of me is thinking, oh, in a meta-ish way, and I'm not purporting in any way to draw a parallel between this podcast and Crap's last tape. However, there is a parallel in that I am asking you to revisit your entire life and ask for the five spools, if you like, that of, of literature that are of import, that are of significance. And, and to a degree, keep drawing a continuum that says, these five things have made me who I am. And perhaps there's something about there being them being other. They are lit- not, I'm not asking you to ask about the five articles you wrote that have made you who you are. There is, you know, there is. They are lit works of of others' literature. Um, so maybe that's more of a peaceful thing. I, I would just be curious whether the revisiting one's own output would necessarily Good. give peace. Good question. I don't know. Thought, no. thought of the day. When you reread you, the, the most prolific writer I know, when you do you reread yourself? Do you read? Not often. No. But sometimes. So I'm, I'm doing a book right now that is, uh, in some parts, revising earlier work. Is it? And so just the last weeks I've been reading earlier self. How much of earlier self have you revisited? How far back? Uh last three years oh okay so it's so a it's fairly a recent book. it's a new book new book but but the revisiting is of stuff that's it's only three years old or yeah right. maybe four okay not not i mean when i i, I do sometimes just because uh occasion demands it read something that i did in the 1980s when i was seven <laughs> and exactly. uh and uh so i do see that that guy had more uh, boldness and less wisdom than he should have. Yeah, does that? But that seems like a really excellent trade-off. No. Well, I think there are advantages in um, not knowing that you're clueless. Definitely. <laughs> so hundred uh, percent. Yeah. 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 yeah, fortune favors the clueless. I think. Apparently, anyway. Um, which uh, so your what would be your next book? Because I have others here, but I want to hear them one that 
that you would put well, in I think next we're talking in, in sequence. So the first two were kind of human heartish. In college, uh, the book that probably had the biggest impact on me is called The Theory of Justice by John Rawls. Mm-hmm. It's probably the greatest work of political philosophy in the 20th century. And Rawls is, uh, I think, largest claim is the principles of justice are those that we would choose behind a veil of ignorance in which we knew not our race or our skin color or our appearance or our age or anything mm. about ourselves, mm-hmm. then then what we choose? Mm. What would we choose? Mm-hmm. And that's a very arresting metaphor. And it quite got under my skin. And Was it, sorry to question, because I know nothing about this area of law or any law, it, was that a radical statement at the time or well, was it just a thesis that was more you, you could see it as having origins in prior philosophers including Kant sure but uh, but Rawls his word is the original position behind a veil of ignorance mm-hmm. that was original to him and uh it is, I think, a uh, orienting idea. Mm-hmm. So if you get into law or politics or government, if you have morals in your head in some way, it, it will affect you. It, How? In what way? Well, if you think about people who are you know, disabled or people who are struggling, if you think a little bit what Rawls is doing is disciplining the there but for the grace of God right. go I and that the fact that you know some of us were born even to parents who got us in a position to work hard mm-hmm. uh, Rawls says that's morally irrelevant even your willingness to work hard is morally irrelevant mm-hmm. and that's a very provocative thing to say mm-hmm. but he gives an account by which your willingness to work hard not that you shouldn't be a, aspire to that or feel good about that but that it is something that uh, is a product either of your genes or of your environment and your family. And so to reward people for willingness to work hard, that might be a good thing to do to encourage people to work hard. But it's not as if there's some deep moral desert on Rawls' view. Now, not everyone agrees with this, Mm. but his book, which is really long and really not well written, Mm. uh, is an elaboration of what principles of justice we choose. It ends with something that's kind of beautiful, which is, it says, purity of heart, if one could attain it, would be to uh, see correctly or something from this point of view. Mm. And the the purity of heart isn't something that really resonates with me, Mm -hmm. I I confess, but if you like a human bondage, then purity of heart isn't going to be something that (laughs) is your deepest core. (laughs) But it is, uh, there's something beautiful about it. Mm -hmm. And so uh, after reading Rawls, I went to law school. Because of of reading Rawls? I wouldn't say it was because of reading Rawls directly, but I'd say it got me thinking about justice and that that was one of a stream of things that you know the alternative was to go to graduate school in English literature mm-hmm. which I thought about but that was a little too passive a role mm-hmm. I thought the, and being a lawyer you could be more engaged with the world and mm-hmm. I, that appealed to me but probably the fact that Rawls um, you know, did get under my skin, not as deeply as the as literature, mm-hmm. but it did get under my skin in thinking about, you know, we had a great paper before his book called Justice is Fairness. Mm-hmm. And uh, these ideas, I think they are a bit in our culture. And 
When I was in the government, one issue I worked on was uh, rights for disabled people, mm -hmm. and I cared a lot about uh, people whose legs don't work and people who suffer from mental illness, and you know what kind of lives they're able to have. Mm -hmm. And there's no question that Rawls, as a philosopher, helps organize. How I think about that, I did get to I did get to know Rawls a little bit. Did you? And and he was. I have some letters from him, which you know, he was a complete hero. And I do. How think, amazing! And how? Uh, what prompted you to write to him, or vice versa? Uh, uh, well, I, I I wrote some paper when I was in my late twenties, early thirties, which he didn't hate, and he actually <laughs> read it. And in something he wrote, he referred to me no. as if I had something to say. Really? And and then I. Passing cross paths with him, and he, you know, became a, a friendly acquaintance. And uh, the most memorable exchange I had with him wasn't in writing; it was oral. And he published two books, and he said so sweetly, I, "I'm working on my second book." Now he wrote the greatest book of political philosophy in the 20th century, and maybe the fourth greatest book, which was the <laughs> second book. And after his second book came out, he got a lot of criticism, and I came up to him very excitedly. I must have been young 30s, and I thought there was some basic problem with his argument, and I said, you know, here's here's what maybe you missed. And I'm sure I said it in a more humble way, sure but, with great, but with great energy. And he gave, I remember in his soft voice, and he had a bit of a stammer, he gave what I knew at the time was a devastating response that I didn't know what the <laughs> fuck I was talking about. You know, I really, did I didn't know anything. And, but, and his response was gentle and devastating. And then he paused, and he looked at me and he said, but I take your point. Oh. Oh. <laughs> And that that had a big impact. I thought, you know, at the time I thought he takes my point. Yeah, of course but then you probably did. the next day <laughs> probably the next day later the next day I thought you know, what a you know, he purity of heart if one could attain it. Yeah, I was about and, to say that and, felt like both yeah. devastating and a complete vindication of everything he'd written about. <laughs> Extraordinary. Yeah. And I also thought and I thought at the time, after he responded devastatingly to my point, and this is stuck with me, that he worked for decades on this stuff, and he had third, heard every problem and every objection. Mm. And uh, and yet, people like me were all exercised that he'd missed something. <laughs> and of course, he had not missed that. He thought about it a thousand times. And yet, he would treat with uh, respect and courtesy mm. the passionate uh, objection that he thought about for all those decades, mm. and maybe he thought, which I think his book, which is you know partly part of the reason it's badly written, is it's so uh, careful to think of every counter argument, right. stuff, which makes it not a joy to read. Right. I, th I think I think there's you know he, he was respectful. He might have missed something, mm. and so when he referred to my paper, I think he thought he, he actually thought he had learned something from my paper. Mm. You sound surprised by that. I, well, I, I, <laughs> it's John Rawls, greatest political philosopher of the 20th century. So uh, I, I don't think maybe he learned a little bit about some legal Who technica. introduced you to him? Who, who first put that book in front of you? I had a professor who's still a, a great friend named Lloyd Weinreb, who was my college teacher, who was 
basically a criminal justice lawyer mm. who, as a kind of busman's holiday, I think, taught an undergraduate course on political philosophy. As you do. <laughs> as one does. He's <laughs> a, a terrific, uh, you know, one of the great experts on searches and seizures and all mm. these uh, legal subjects. And he... Um, uh, he was, I think his own heart was in thinking about justice. Mm. And so he said, I'll teach that stuff. Mm. And a little bit of some people, literature is what gets to them. This mm. is what got to him. Right. And it, and it was infectious. It also he had a kind of shy, uh, lovable smile as he would criticize the people. He wasn't a spectacular teacher, but he was a spectacular teacher. Meaning if you saw him in the classroom, you wouldn't think, oh my God. But his love for the material yeah. made made the stuff which was completely new to me I was an English major right it made it um, you know uh, what uh, 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 inescapable right how interesting too to have been an English English major and to have this one book put in front of you and this redirects you to such a degree that really is a pivotal book yeah. that's not just yeah. oh a book I enjoyed one summer that's that's it's a game changer, that yeah, one. Yeah. Well, another way maybe to get at it is that I knew nothing about any of this world, but apparently when Rawls wrote uh, utilitarianism, the idea that what's to be done is the greatest good, roughly for the greatest number, was all the rage. It was the prevailing view. Mm -hmm. And Rawls thought it was uh, not correct mm. and that people should be treated as ends, not means. And to see society as an aggregating machine was not to show respect for persons. Mm. And justice is all about that. Mm. And that was, uh, you know, it was opening up a whole new world. Sure. And I think a little, it must be a little bit like if some, I have some friends who had little or no religious training or school, mm -hmm. and then religion uh, appeared in their lives. Mm. And the friends I'm thinking about now actually became uh, deeply devout. Mm. And uh, uh, I didn't become you know, a devout Rawlsian, mm -hmm. as they're called, mm -hmm. but it was like a, a completely new world of how to think about something that I'd never thought about. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it's, it's not as if in any day a human being whose job isn't to do philosophy thinks, you know, veil of ignorance, original position. But if you are working on, you know, environmental protection and the rights of future generations, or if you're thinking about kids, uh, then Rawls is like a, a background staple. He actually has a discussion of future generations. Mm. And, uh, and, you know, I've worked on climate change and issues uh, where... Uh, our grandkids and their their kids are at risk and mm. roles is a, a guide mm. it's so interesting Cass it really is it's wonderful it's it's rare certainly in the podcast that I've done to date anyway that I hear of a book that actually um, pivoted somebody to that degree it's really lovely to hear does that do, the morality of law which is the next book that I yeah. is that would that be does that fall Morality of Law by Lon Fuller published 1964 is that would that naturally fall into the next book that you would talk about uh, that's a good, that's not a bad candidate because it's law school after college but uh, don't but don't let me dictate this you dictate uh, where we go next okay uh, I think that's sequentially a good one mm -hmm. um, and the, the Morality of Law it's, it's a very simple book mm -hmm. and the idea is, imagine you have a, a king mm. 
I'm going to have a less elegant version than uh, Fuller had. But imagine you had a king who issues edicts that are inconsistent with one another and says you have to walk on the left side and you have to walk on the right side of the street and who says, uh, there's some law, but I'm I'm not going to tell you about it, (laughs) or who changes the law uh, on Tuesday from what it was on Monday Mm -hmm. and so fast you can't even tell, and who... um, applies the law retroactively. So on Wednesday, you're completely allowed uh, to smoke the artist formerly known as pot. But uh, <laughs> but then he says, no, that, that was actually, I changed it, and that's illegal now. Mm-hmm. And what Fuller said, and I've described like five things that the king does, and Fuller had six or seven. He says that th- th- that king... It's not as if the king is is violating the law. It's that the king doesn't. There's no legal system at all. Mm. So if it's retroactive, if you can't find out what the rules are, if they're consistent, if they're changing so rapidly that you can't uh, understand them, then there's not a legal system at all. Mm-hmm. And you could see that as just a semantic claim, mm-hmm. but. If you think about uh, Hitler's Germany or uh, maybe Turkey these days mm-hmm. and uh, legal systems that aren't really legal systems, Fuller, I think, is putting his a finger exactly on that. Mm-hmm. And the king that he describes, I think he called him creatively King Rex, is uh, just a made-up person. Mm-hmm. But in any democratic country, there may be inconsistency in the law or retroactivity or things where you can't really figure out what they are. Mm-hmm. And you know, I was privileged to work in the government on issues that were kind of like this, where people couldn't figure out what the requirements were. Mm-hmm. And Fuller a great guide to don't do that. That's not a legal system anymore. Mm-hmm. And is he still revered? Is he still considered? I think I don't think people know him anymore. Really, I think the morality of law is kind of an old book. Passé. Mm. I think so, but I think it's fantastic. Mm. And okay, here's another way to put it. This may seem a little esoteric, but uh, the words "the rule of law" are used all the time. Mm-hmm. But people often use those words to mean good. They don't mean anything specific. Mm-hmm. So it might be. You know, Trump doesn't believe in the rule of law, or Obama didn't believe in the rule of law, or Bush violated the sure. rule of law. But, but what's the rule of law? And uh, I think what Fuller captures is the rule of law is actually a very specific thing. Mm-hmm. The rules have to be general. They have to be prospective. They have to be knowable. They have to be accessible. They have to be uh, consistent. Mm-hmm. They can't be contradictory. And there are like six things, seven mm-hmm. things. Then you have the rule of law. Right. The, you can have a system that respects the rule of law, but it sucks. Mm-hmm. Like if the system says that everybody has to do 50 push-ups uh, at midnight, that's that's not good. But it's consistent with the rule of law. Or if you have something that says uh, if you're an actor, your taxes have to be 98%. Really <laughs> <laughs> that, that's consistent with the rule of law, but it, it's bad. But he, but this he, is where he took flack, right? Because when you wrote, uh, told me this is one of your books, I did a tiny bit of research, m- minute, because again, this is not a world I know and it's not my area of expertise, or not that I really have one. But one of the things that I came up with was that it was... Um, that seemed that seemed a sticking point that he'd come up against was that he he seems to be saying that you have a 
an obligation to obey all laws. If they adhere to these seven principles, then there is a moral obligation to obey them, whether they suck or not. Yeah. Um, and that that had been maybe part of why he'd... Well, that I, I wouldn't agree with, mm. and I wouldn't consider that part of the argument right. that got to me. Right. So if you have a system that complies with the rule of law, but it says that, you know, you're not allowed to criticize president mm -hmm. that is something that a little civil disobedience is a good idea sure. so I, I don't remember fuller's exact arguments on that uh he might have been saying something like this this is what i remember uh that the problem is not that a legal system that violates these things um uh has bad law it's that it has no law, right. and that's that's and the, that's the and, and it may seem you know like a matter of words, but I th I think it is extremely clarifying about the modern world. But isn't this what we're talking about? Isn't it the, that I mean, this goes to the sort of heart of everything about books, is that it's all a matter of words, and yet the matter of words right. is everything because it's all we have. If it's the only way I have yeah. of communicating what's in my head. To what's in your head, then a specificity of words and word order and how you choose to use them and how do you choose to arrange them on a page, be it for a poem or craps louse tape or a book on the morality of law. I um I don't think there's any such thing as semantics really in well, that derogatory sense. Yeah. Okay. What I was groping toward was if you say that opium makes you sleep because of its dormitive properties, mm -hmm. it's that's. Kind of semantic, right. and not explaining. Right, 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 right. So, I see. Yeah. yeah. So if if Fuller is saying that something that's not clarifying about law, but just a definition, mm -hmm. that wouldn't be so magnificent. Right. But to, but to uh, clarify what a system that respects the rule of law has to be, mm. I like Crab's Last Tape better <laughs> than, than Fuller. <laughs> But, but but Fuller, it doesn't change the soul. Yeah. But for someone who works on, uh, you know, legal system, Fuller's. Yeah. Uh, and for someone who you know, light. who 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 has spent you know a formative part of your career on on creating, I'm going to botch this horribly, but this is just from the layman's point of view, creating rules or a system that is human, that is that is both. Um, empirically sound and and stable, but human, but that includes one's humanness is seems to me. I, I yeah. can see why a book like this would would speak to you yeah. because if that if the infrastructure is intact, then we can then we can be humans within it. Then we can completely. We are free to err uh, or be nudged or um, you know be encouraged if we if we know that we can trust the system to contain us completely. Yeah. Um, there's my two cents on that. No, good. <laughs> you're, you're completely right. I hadn't actually seen that connection, but I've worked on the idea of choice architecture, mm -hmm. which is, you know, when you make choices at a grocery store or at the airport about what to do, there's an architecture in the background that may steer you in certain ways. And it's good if the architecture is respectful of what right. Fuller's talking about. Right. Yeah. What would be your next book that you want to talk about? Well, I think the the next just we're, we're going uh, through the march of time. Uh, so law school was fuller, and then sometime after, let's say, 
uh, we'll have the prize winner on the list, which is uh, the, the Olympic gold goes to buy it for her uh, transformative novel Possession, yes. which is uh, which I loved too. Possession was I'm just I like to give dates always. Possession was published in 1990. Um, I like to just yeah. anchor these things. So yeah, I think so, I, I think yeah. I actually read it. Uh, probably 1998 or so, mm-hmm. maybe 1999, so it was some time after, the couple decades after, but since we'll maybe get to it quick because it is, uh, it's so great. What did you love about it, other than it's about two academics who fall in love with each other? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, let's, let's see how to put this exactly. So I think what I loved about it, it begins something like this happened, these things happened. And it's from uh, uh, the poet, uh, the old poet, uh, his words about, his coded words about his love affair with the, uh, the poetess mm-hmm. with whom he had an affair. Mm-hmm. And something about... Uh, uh, permanence and uh, what is it uh, impermanence mm. of the most important things in life mm. so that there's something I think incredibly beautiful and true about the uh, the the poet's conviction and clarity of the what is it enduring nature of that thing that happened mm. and uh I'm not getting this quite right, so let me go around it a little Mm-mm. bit. Uh, there's that. Uh, and, uh, you know, of course it's fiction, but in some way I think it really isn't. That in every life, life there's stuff, whether it's an affair or the beginning of a romance or something professional, which no one who knows that person except maybe one person or two, maybe one, will ever know about, mm. but it happened. Mm. And uh, the, the way there's a kind of uh, mystery into the lives of the two poets mm-hmm. that unlocks something, which for the, the two lovers was uh, you know, probably the most central thing in their lives, though by it is not unfair mm. to the fact that the female protagonist had a lesbian affair with another woman mm-hmm. who was not dismissed or ridiculed, mm-hmm. though it looks like she's going to be. And uh, the uh, the male protagonist had a wife who was not dismissed or ridiculed, though it looks like she's going to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, on, on the contrary, mm-hmm. Blanche, I guess, is the name of the uh, the the uh, the woman lover, and I'm forgetting the I don't name remember either of, of the of the the poet's wife, uh, Lamotte, La- Christabel Lamotte. Well, that's the that's, that's the, poet. the poetess. Yeah. So yeah. Christabel has an affair with Blanche, as I recall. Yes, that sounds right. And uh, and so all this is, uh, you know, I think uh, uh, I'm going to tell rather than show, which is bad, but it's surpassing beauty, and I think the 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 uh, the best part of the novel, every part of which is great, is the letters they write to each yes. other, Christabel and uh, Ash, Ash, yeah. Randolph, Ash. Yeah. So Randolph and, and the the letters, yeah. which are uh, 
astonishingly particular and delicate, mm. and the the delicacy of their courtship, mm. in which he is, I think he's smitten with her immediately. Yeah. Uh, but the, and the first letter found is torn up mm-hmm. uh, because he can't send it to direct or something, and mm-hmm. the one that's sent is more uh, formal. Mm-hmm. And then her. Um, you know, uh, intrigued uh, response, but also um, cautious, mm-hmm. and the way that uh, he's persistent, and she is uh, going, getting to throw caution to the winds mm-hmm. as she falls for him, and uh, the momentum of the relationship, and it's as you were saying about words, it captures something I think that that everyone has experienced in one way or another. And there's no work of literature I'm aware of that gets at that right. in the way possession does. And it, that very formulation is a tribute to Pyatt because yeah. the word possession is played on at multiple points in the novel mm. where, and it's used in various ways about, you know, does Ash possess Christabel or vice versa? I think the deepest answer is yes, mm-hmm. but the kind of... Uh, arc of the plot answer is no mm-hmm. and that it's heartbreaking that uh, she dies not knowing mm-hmm. that he knows their child was theirs mm-hmm. but the coda he dies knowing the child was theirs and gives the child a little gift with a quick oral signal for the child to tell mm-hmm the mother so that she will know he knows yeah. and the message is never delivered. Ugh. Even to read that now is uh, completely heartbreaking. Yeah. So uh, I think the book has more to say about love and romance and about what ma- most matters mm. than than anything I know. Mm. Beautiful, Cass. So beautiful to hear you describe it that way too because you brought the book back to me in a way that I didn't remember you, you you just gave me back the experience of reading yeah. Possession without necessarily going through the plot. So thank you for that. Yeah. It's um it reminded me as you as you were talking of one of the things I came away with from it, which was this sense of the deep unknowability of yes, anybody. That's great. And 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 that and that that's the sort of the irony of intimacy is is this sort of um deep familiarity that only breeds more and more unknowability. Completely. No, that's completely. So that uh, the people who knew Christabel and Randolph Ash best did not know the most central facts about them. Yes, exactly. That's that's just so. And and, uh, the, the fact that as described, the fact that was most central, they conceived a child together, mm. and the heroine, the modern heroine, Maud, is their product, right. which actually makes the whole thing less heartbreaking. Yes. And she's phenomenal. Yes. And that, uh, but the unknowability, yes, though I like to think that part of the power of the thing is, even though they both died stricken in a way, mm. she particularly, mm-hmm. they knew each other. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think that's true. I think I'll take that. <laughs> didn't, didn't they? Yeah, that's... they did. They did. They saw each other. They felt, f- yes, they felt. And no one else saw yeah. them, really. Yeah. It's um, it's also interesting because it sort of goes 
incidentally, but to the heart of like, what is if if at, if at, if at core we are so unknowable, even with a literary output to leave behind or a child to leave behind and be known by, to what end biography? You know, which is what the which is you know what they're the what the modern day protagonists are doing is is attempting to recreate the biographies of these people and and there's something um, there's something interesting there's something interesting to me in that in that what what why do we strive to create biographies of people what is this puzzle this this pulling together of the jigsaw puzzle of who somebody who somebody was and can we attempt to reconstruct them just from facts just from the facts of a life Um, and will we end up as i think by it is suggesting way off way off right missing the whole point missing the whole point of who they are um yeah it's a beautiful book i have some light-hearted follow-up uh, questions uh-huh. for you um which um should just be as fun or as breezy as you'd like to make them um what was the last book that made you cry was there one? Uh, Has there been the, one? The Impossible Lives of Greta Wells by mm. Andrew Sean Greer, I think. I didn't it's, know it. Uh, it's about, of course, uh, kind of time travel and parallel worlds, so you should know it. <laughs> uh, and it's... Cass is an avid uh, lost fan, it bears, it bears yeah, saying. <laughs> avid is understating. And it uh, is... Uh, about a woman who kind of connects with a guy and kind of doesn't in various worlds. And, and what made you cry? Uh, somebody dies whom okay. we love very much, and it looks like nothing will work out and things work out. Really? So both the, the death of her brother, um, who's uh, gay, and the description of uh, HIV land in the period... Mm is uh, heartbreaking but also full of, of humor mm. and also the um, the fact that the relationship works out I love yeah. that yeah. Um, what's the book you may not have one for this what's the book you're most ashamed of loving um, I think that I have a lot do uh, you I, yeah, oh I love uh, it great uh, um, I think the one I'm most ashamed to love is called Dutch Okay. It's a much panned biography of Ronald Reagan. Oh, and really? And it's connected with what we're discussing. It's called Dutch. It's I called love Dutch. it already. It's by, I think, a guy named Morris who was commissioned by the Reagans to do a biography uh-huh. of, of Reagan. And he couldn't because he found Reagan too opaque. Really? And he found it an impossible task. So what he did was to make up a character, <laughs> who was him, who was with Reagan throughout his life and was dealing with this opaque person. And people hated the biography because while most of it was true, the leading uh, person, aside from Reagan, was a fake person who yeah. never existed, who was his friend. And it, the fake person was a literary device who made the thing uh, 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 completely work, I think, meaning made the biography work because he got through the opacity uh-huh. by having someone who interacted with this genuinely. And I think with Reagan, uh, it's plausible, genuinely, a person who just you could not penetrate. Right. Fascinating, what a fascinating device to resort to. Yeah. And it would still fall under the, I would find it in the library under biography, not yeah. under fiction. Yeah, I think it's great and everyone hated it. Uh, I, I also, anything that has the word Thor in it, I, I love that. <laughs> I'm a little embarrassed. So 
The comic books, of course, are <laughs> phenomenal. Doesn't everyone agree with that? That's, there is no, there's no shame that, in loving Thor. We're allowed to love Thor. Um, what's the last book you threw across the room, either figuratively or not? It's recent. There's a book about the Clinton campaign called Shattered, mm-hmm. and it, uh, it's so bad. This Sorry, last Sorry, authors. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. about Hillary Clinton's campaign, and it's about how everyone associated with the Clinton campaign is incompetent or awful. Mm-hmm. Hillary Clinton's awful. Bill Clinton is awful. The advisors are awful. Why did you pick it's it It's gotten great reviews. I think everyone <laughs> thinks it's fantastic except for me. But, but the fact that Hillary Clinton lost, according to the author's narrative, mm-hmm. was foreordained by the uh, incompetence and, and stupidity of all the people involved. She came really close. She, if she. my former student Jim Comey hadn't released you know, these comments about the email, uh, she probably would have won. And then you could write, you know, spectacular or something yeah. <laughs> about how they were all brilliant and geniuses. So it's a reflection of hindsight bias. I think it's a mean book mm. and I think it's a deeply misleading book mm. because they're not incompetent. You know, they're very far from perfect, but they're sure. really smart people, including whether you like or not, Secretary Clinton. She's not an amazing campaigner, but she's a very smart person. Mm-hmm. And they ran a campaign that wasn't the campaign that is depicted in this book. And the fact that my Kindle is in tatters and <laughs> all smashed up is I blame the authors of that book and shattered is what. My Kindled is. Uh, tell me, um, well, that answers my question. Do you read? Do you prefer to read print or Kindle? Do you have a? I prefer to read print, but I go back and forth. Yeah. So if it's a, if it's a book I really want to spend time with and underline and uh, uh, use, mm-hmm. it, it will be print. Mm-hmm. If it's a book that is for fun, Kindle. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I will get one of each mm-hmm. and. Uh, that's allowed. Yeah, that's, uh, and <laughs> and yeah, the, I, the the simplest answer is print's better. Yeah, you remember it better. I I couldn't agree more. I retain print, whereas Kindle I find absolutely forgettable. Um, what's the this? I think you probably don't have an answer to this one either. What's the book or author you feel most guilty about not having read? I feel like you've read everything. Trollop. 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 Wasn't he an author? Yes, he Isn't was. Isn't he great? Author. <laughs> I've never read him. Trollop. No, not on you, my list. You and me both. Um, but I don't feel guilty about that. I don't feel that. I don't feel panicked about that. Panicked is too strong. But I don't. You no. would like to have. You'd like to hit that one day. One's supposed to have read Trollop. Uh, Trollop's supposed to be great <laughs> for a full life. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, Goethe. Another one. Goethe. Uh, okay. I've read Goethe. Yeah. Do you? Um, who do you take your book recommendations from? There's. Uh, a person, I'm sure it's not an algorithm, a human being who really knows and loves me, who is works for Amazon, <laughs> who, who uh, recommends periodically. You will like this book, and I've never met, and never you, heard. You believe but I'm her? So grateful. She knows you so she well. She knows me really well. She so knows that's you that's so probably well. the best recommendations. I do get. you um, do you read poetry? I do, but with less uh, relish mm. than uh, than I would like. Did you to. used to? Yeah, in college I read poetry. I love Keats, mm. um, but I find it. What is it? Uh, it's rare that a poem really gets to me. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, mm-hmm. rare. Mm. 
Is there a book you, again, this feels just so redundant, asked to you, is there a book you wish you'd written? No, because you've written them all. <laughs> Cass has written all the books <laughs> no. or is about to write another one. No, the, the, I, I wish I'd written, I guess, or I would have been very proud to have written a book called Scarcity. Hmm. And the theme of the book is that our uh, being poor, being busy, being hungry, being friendless are the same in the sense that your mind is occupied by the fact of scarcity. Mm. So if time is scarce, you are uh, thinking, how am I going to do this thing now? Or if you're friendless, you're thinking, how am I going to get friends, mm -hmm. which isn't a good way to get them. Mm -hmm. If you're um, uh, if you're poor, you're thinking, how am I going to make ends meet? Mm -hmm. And if you're hungry, you're going to think, food. Mm -hmm. uh, I have a little puppy dog who's, she's, I hope, not hungry, but she's often thinking food. Mm -hmm. And the brilliance of the book is to say what cognitive scarcity does to you. And it says that if you're poor, and it documents this, and asked to solve a financial problem, then you take an IQ test, you do as badly as if you'd had no sleep the night before. Really? And so the idea of limited bandwidth in the human mind, um, uh, it's a great idea, and that it unifies a lot of stuff, and I think it has a lot of implications for uh, thinking about people and also thinking about policy. But expand this. I missed the I missed the essence of this. So scarcity is a frame of mind that then... Yes, okay. That we'll, we'll, we'll give a vivid, vivid example, and then we'll talk about more mundane. So imagine you're Philip in a human bondage, mm -hmm. and you are Mildred scarce, mm -hmm. meaning you don't have Mildred, mm -hmm. and you're thinking about her all the time. Mm -hmm. And that makes it hard to do other things mm -hmm. in life because your mind is taken over by where's Mildred? What does she <laughs> think of me? Now, if you're uh, hungry and and you're thinking uh, where's food, then your ability to do your job or to interact with other people is badly compromised. If you're really busy, then you are tunneling on the particular task you have, mm -hmm. whether it's uh, getting kids through something mm -hmm. or uh, doing your job that's maybe extending more hours than you mm -hmm. like, you're tunneling. And the authors talk about tunnel, you're in a tunnel. Mm -hmm. And your ability to do other stuff is, is greatly weakened. Mm -hmm. So that's like being uh, intensely in, in love, being um, uh, having no time, mm -hmm. uh, being hungry. And if you're poor, you're thinking, how am I going to find the money mm -hmm. to get through this thing? And then to think about other things, like how am I going to uh, manage my children, right, right, is really right. hard. Sure. So poor people have uh, various behavioral problems, which is kind of rude to talk about, but they don't take uh, medicines that they're supposed mm -hmm. to. They often don't show up for appointments that they're supposed mm -hmm. to. And it's not that there's something wrong with them. Mm -hmm. It's that they're in a tunnel. Mm -hmm. And that book... Uh, you know, I yeah, I admire so much. I would have been very pleased to have written that. Mm, it sounds fascinating. I really it's great. and I can see why it's one. You it's funny written. also. The authors have wit, which is a surprise. Um, that makes me want to read. There we go. That goes on the list of ones I want to read. What do you wish you read more of or less of? I wish I read more history. Mm -hmm. um, I don't get into history, and I feel I should. Mm -hmm. 
and I probably should read fewer mysteries. <laughs> so there's, there's more history, m- less mystery. Uh, exactly. <laughs> there so go. there's one mystery writer, Harlan Coben, who I think is fantastic, and he's just such a great plotter that I don't regret any time I spend with Harlan Coben. But there are many mystery writers who kind of are Harlan Coben wannabes. And you I'm, set me up with the snowman a few years ago, whoa. and I've never forgiven you for that. Oh, I'm because so sorry. that set me down such a dark path yeah. with Joe Nesbo, and, and I've been, I've, 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 he's good, right? I've gone the whole yeah. way. I've yeah, gone deep. Good. I've he's gone really, belly deep into he's that. Good. Yeah. And so uh, Nesbo, no regrets for Nesbo. <laughs> no regrets for Nesbo. Uh, but uh, regrets for uh, history, I, I don't get excited about, and mm. I think that's a character failure. I think so too, Cass. I've been meaning to say I think it's a real <laughs> flaw and you need to work on it. <laughs> What's the um, book you liked that you thought you'd hate? Um, I generally it. have an upbeat attitude toward books that I start. Mm-hmm. Do you finish the, them? Do you, do you? Uh, no, mm-hmm. but there's a German psychologist named Gerd Gigerenzer and name. his uh, his uh, persona on the page is like his name, Gerd Gigerenzer. It's very disagreeable <laughs> and kind of destructive, I think, of and negative. But he wrote a book on risk called Risk Savvy, mm-hmm. which I felt I kind of had to read for my job. Mm-hmm. And I expected and kind of hoped to dislike it, but it, it's good. It it's is. good about why people have problems dealing with risk. I, 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 I quite like it. Uh-huh. Um, what's the sexiest book that you've read? Whoa. Mm-hmm. Um, the very sexiest book. I mean, this is a, a reflection of the conversation of human bondage with a sexy book <laughs> for a 12-year-old. It can um, be for any time. It doesn't have to be today's sexy. Uh, <laughs> Let me think a little bit. Think Possession is a very sexy book. Yes, the Time is. Traveler's Wife is a sexy oh, book. Yes, uh, and I think it's a it's a beautiful book. It's more romantic than sexy. Yeah. But the p- p- Possession is as sexy as, yeah. as it is romantic. Yeah. Um, we can go on to the next one. A, you can come back to it. Let me think it. a little bit. What's the um, What's the book that you know makes you look good when you recommend it? This is your surefire, this will get you laid if you're reading it at the bar book. Well, when I go to bars, I usually bring with me a particular book. It's called So You're Rich, Now What? (laughs) (laughs) And uh, uh, it it. always works. uh, Every time we chat, uh, that one—that's that uh, great. That's hilarious. Uh, they, they go crazy. <laughs> they all go crazy. <laughs> Catnip. Yeah. Um, all right, you get to take one book to your desert island. What is it? Uh, I think I would take uh, improbably a collection of essays called. Judgment under uncertainty. No, <laughs> and I think I may be the only one what? on the planet on the to planet, attempt it. What is this? <laughs> take the book. Now, uh, my favorite book is Possession, but I feel I know it well. I'm not going to read it a thousand times. Okay. Maybe it would be Possession, but Judgment under Uncertainty has uh, a bunch of essays on how to make decisions uh, when you don't know what to do, huh. and on an island that would be useful but it's also <laughs> funny about how people make judgments under uncertainty it's um 
uh, shows the foibles of humanity. Mm -hmm. And if you're all by yourself on an island, uh, to have some instant recognition of what the species is like (laughs) would be good. Okay, the Bible. I take the Bible. (laughs) No, I love this. I I think we can safely guarantee you are the only person (laughs) taking that book. Kerstin, it's been such a pleasure and an honor. Thank you so, so much for doing the show. Thank you. That was Cass Sunstein, and you've been listening to Bookish. If you like the show, subscribe, tell a friend, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Please do that. It really helps us. Share one of the interviews on social media. Send someone an email to tell them you liked it. Tweet about it. Instagram it. That's it. I've run out of other social media platforms. Snapchat. That's one, right? Do that. No idea how that works. All the music is created and performed by my multi-talented husband, Davy Holmes, and the show is produced by the excellent Joe Batanz. Join me next week for my interview with my old and wonderful friend, the actor and director, Jared Harris. 